salams and welcome. You're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication and podcast devoted to alternative and spiritual travel, history and culture from a Muslim perspective. Join us while we talk to writers, historians, artists, as well as a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Assalamualaikum, Zara here. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, I speak to Yasin Kippi. Yasin holds a degree from the University of Cape Town in politics, media and Arabic. He's a journalist and a youth show host on current affairs on the Voice of the Cape Radio. He's also a student of the sacred sciences. He tells me about the history of Islam and Muslims in South Africa. As always, we really welcome any feedback. So if you're a regular listener, we'd love to hear your thoughts about any previous episodes we've done or any topics you'd like for us to cover in the future. So if you're on Twitter, let us know your thoughts at SFootsteps. So people who have been listening to our podcast um, regularly will know that we've done two episodes previously. So one on the roots of Islam in West Africa, and then and then another episode on the roots of Islam in East Africa. And both of those discussions were fascinating because the stories, um, the story of Islam and Muslims in both regions is so different. Um, so I'm really intrigued to find out more now about what it was like in the South. Um, from my brief readings, I, I can't claim to know much on the subject. But um, yeah, from my brief readings, I can tell that it differs considerably. Is that right? Yeah, the major, major difference is that the Arabs had a major influence on the rest of Africa, but Southern Africa is quite a different story. Multicultural and cosmopolitan is quite, um, you know, a weak word to actually use. It's been way more diverse than, than even that. Wow. Okay. So before we get into that, could you let our listeners know a bit about yourself and what your background is? Well, I'm, I'm pretty much a personification of just that, uh, really a biryani of ethnicities, I suppose. <laughs> it's quite <laughs> funny because my father's um, mostly Indonesian, but I can tell you my name is Muhammad Yassin Kippi. The Kippi part might be Scottish, I don't really know. My father's name is Muhammad Yunus, his father's Ismail, and his father's Abdul Hamid, and that's as far as I can go because really our heritage has been cut off when it comes to actual names and actual people that we actually... Uh, can look at as our ancestors, but there's so much diversity uh, when it comes to that, um, really, slavery as a whole. So, mostly Indonesian, I believe some sort of um, Indian and Afrikaner blood on my father's side, but my mother's side is where it becomes really interesting, because she's, um, you know, she'd be classified as Indian in the, you know, new South Africa after apartheid, and even during apartheid was Indian South African. Mm. Um, but she was, uh, her, her mother was half Dutch or half Boer, as we call it. It's a particular type of Dutch that settled here and, you know, lived here for quite a while. After the first uh, Dutch colonizers, um, her f- grandfather was apparently mostly Afghani, but I believe he lived in India. And from her father, uh, her father's side, um, they are a mixture of, I believe, Yemeni and, and also Indian. So, it's really a melting pot, and wow, it's yeah. really a representation of much of South Africa and the diversity, yeah, that comes with those ethnicities, yeah. Right, because I, I mean, I was going to say, as an hearing that as an outsider, as a non-South African, that just seems amazing to me. Like that's that you've mentioned so many different regions and so many different countries, but is that something that's, um, you know, pretty typical of Muslims in South Africa, or is it 
that your heritage in particular is very diverse? I think both. Uh, I certainly think that my grandparents were a bit more liberal in allowing the a mostly Indian daughter to marry, uh, you know, quote unquote Malay. Right, of course, yeah. But at the same time, you'll find uh, the diversity of different ethnicities, really. Uh, I think um, I, I did a six-part series previously on um, the Voice of the Cape Radio, which I work for, the first and oldest Muslim uh, radio station uh, and largest radio station in South Africa. And we did each part looking at the origins of Muslims. So the first one was Indonesia. The second one was Yemen. Third one was Europe itself. Um, thirdly, also we looked at Africa itself, and um, and then India, and then just the diaspora of different ethnicities, which were kind of sampled. And at the end of the day, if you look back at history, it wasn't millions and billions of people. There were quite fewer people, and you know, small communities. And I suppose that's how much of the ideas grew, and the ability to actually grow and and strengthen any sort of ideology or community. Um, was founded. And so I think Cape Town is really a great example of that. Um, one of the, the, the interesting things I think about, one of the features of a multicultural uh, society, much like London, is the different accents you find in one location. So I know yeah. perhaps in England you'll find up north a bit of a stronger accent, but in Cape Town you'll find all of the different accents <laughs> emerging. And so that's quite fascinating. Yeah, that sounds incredibly fascinating. So we'll talk a bit more about um, you know, the Muslim commu- community in South Africa today a bit later. Before that, let's start at the beginning. When did the first Muslims actually go to South Africa? Like, how far back was that? Okay, well, uh, I'm going to be a bit controversial here because uh, the, like official- him, obviously. <laughs> the official documentation says uh, 1658, but there are reports um, that have somewhat been half verified, if I may say so, of some of the Sahaba coming all the way to southern Africa. Oh, and wow. I'm not talking about Malawi or other places like that where the Arabs were, you know, centuries upon centuries ago here in southern Africa, you know, the Sadiq region, but in terms of the tip of Africa. So there's a place called Saldana Bay where apparently a Sahabi by the name of Musa, and this was given through a Senate by some Moroccan sheikh who had come here. Um, and so some people believe it, some people don't because it's not been 100% proven. Right. Um, so that's one of the things, you know, we've, we are a very spiritual uh, society in that we've always had inherent in our identity as Muslims the practice of tasawwuf and the various beliefs of, beliefs of miracles. In fact, the great ancestors that we have here in Cape Town who are Muslim, we call them awliya, but not just for um you know, spiritual reasons, but also for political reasons in the resistance to the Dutch, but also because of the, the spiritual miracles that we've seen being performed in their lifetime and after they had passed away, so much so that we actually call the maqams kramats from the word karama, miracle. So the earliest, um, you know, much people would say that the father of Islam in South Africa, and, and I'm mainly going to be speaking about the Cape Town region is because um, this is really the first city that the colonizers have come into so much so that they called it the mother city and because it's the mother city of all of the, the other cities in South Africa but the the, off, the the common answer would be Sheikh Yusuf of Makassar and he's buried in a place called Makassar that they named after he the actual place, the actual city of Makassar in uh, Java in Indonesia um, but it actually started about 30 years before him with the introduction, of course, of the slaves from different parts 
uh, of the world, predominantly obviously from India, but these were Hindu slaves that had come, Indian Hindu slaves, not Muslims, and uh, that brought certain um, you know, blacks from the rest of Africa to come and work and farm, etc. Muslims uh, predominantly obviously came from uh, Indonesia and they weren't slaves. They were called Orang Kayan. So the word Orang means people and Kayan means nobility. So they had been some of the resistors to the Dutch um, you know, colonization that had occurred in Java. And they were the royalty. And uh, so the first documentation, according to one of the historians, Ibrahim Mahidi, uh, was a man named Ibrahim of Batavia. That's all we know of him. The um, the next few people who had come, you know, 10 years later, around that time, 1668, were the, 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 the last sultan of the Malakas. Uh, and his name was uh, Tuang, we say Tuang, master, teacher, or sultan, Abdurrahman Matibisha. And uh, he came with his sheikh and an entourage, his wife's buried next to him at his maqam, and his sheikh was Sheikh Mahmoud. And according to tradition, he was a Qadri sheikh. And so those were, they set up the first community aloof from the center of Cape Town. And if you do you know, happen to be here, inshallah, in the future, uh, we'll take you there. It's called Islam Hill. The place is very beautiful, Constantia. It's one of those areas where um, during apartheid, all of the you know, non-whites had to leave and it's the most green place you could see. It's like the Scottish Highlands. It's really beautiful. And in the middle of them, uh, these maqams are found. And uh, in fact, the story goes that, um, uh, you know, some of the non-Muslims didn't know who was what, what was happening there uh, originally when they had passed away. And a fire had ha- occurred and um, it was just this area that was untouched by the fire. And so when they'd gone there, they brought some of the Muslims and they said, oh no, this is where... Uh, Tuang Abdurrahman and Tuang Mahmoud Abedid. And so they erected some sort of place and they gave ownership to the Muslims of that land. So it's quite interesting. Yeah. It's fascinating. Um, so, you know, the, the people you mentioned who came first, am I right in saying they were all exiled by the Dutch in the East Indies, or is that not correct? Well, absolutely. That, that, that's correct. But I think there's a bit of um, uh, monolithic thinking when it comes to what colonization meant in the world at mm. that time. Because especially in Indonesia, they were quite a strong power. In fact, they would be considered colonizers themselves of other places before the Dutch had come there, um, you know, between different islands. And the uh, territory and the climate in Indonesia is not one that can easily be colonized. And so there were much to and fro battles happening between the Dutch and the Indonesian royalty and the various people itself. Um, but over the years, of course, the Dutch with their megaships and the Artillery had come and overtook, t- taken much of the place through hard power, but also through soft power because they had, um, you know, um, I suppose uh, persuaded many of the royalty themselves to become Dutch. Like they say, some people are more British than the British, I suppose. Um, and so they were inside spies and, you know, had taken over. But at the end of the day, it was it was mainly, you know, the, the biggest royalty who had fought against the Dutch and some of the uh, guides, spiritual guides were exiled and so the Orankayan were among the first but the, the the biggest one really and and we do attribute him as the father of Islam in South Africa was Sheikh Yusuf of Makassar and uh, he was certainly a scholar, uh, he was really a great scholar, in fact he was um, he had travelled the world and he had become a great student, he had gone to Mecca and learned there and in fact Imam Al-Haddad, the um, the Sahib of the Ratib al-Haddad, and many of the Alawi people know him, 
um, attributes uh, and, and writes about him in one of his books. Uh, he mentions really? of Jawa. Yes, absolutely. So um, he, he's quite known. And on the way out of Yemen, going back to Indonesia, he's you know he's made the 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 the, the sheikh or the murshid of all the Khalwatiya. So he's, he gets the title Taj al Khalwati, the, the 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 crown of the Khalwati order. And uh, on his way back to Indonesia, he gets picked up by the Dutch and sent to Sri Lanka because um, he's had great influence in the Indonesian fight against the Dutch. And he was considered not only a Sufi and a scholar, but also as a Mujahid, uh, someone who had le- definitely led the fight and the resistance against the colonizers. Now, they sent him firstly to Ceylon in Sri Lanka, but apparently he could still have some sort of communication with uh, people back home. So they sent him further along. Uh, to the other side of the world, South Africa, and uh, right. not, and even so, they didn't want to put him in the center of Cape Town, so they put him aloof away from the center of Cape Town in a place called Zanflit, uh, Fari, and now it's called Makassar, where there's a tomb of his there. This was in 1694. Uh, he only stayed here for five years until he passed away, and uh, he had quite a big influence. He had a big entourage, and his story is a fascinating one. Uh, his descendant story is a fascinating one. And I think, uh, uh, you know, this podcast is certainly not enough to learn much about the histories. But I, what I do want to capture is, uh, of course, the effort at which they maintained the preservation of the dean among, you know, all of these difficulties. Yeah. Even so, so much so that, you know, some of the Dutch officials had forced some of his children to, to leave Islam. And um, they'd done so under the, you know, the, the, the understanding that, uh, preservation of life is more important than the preservation of, of, of the deen and the maqasid of the usul of the sharia. So this was quite fascinating. Um, his influence was was largely spiritual because he hadn't had that much um, social connection to the rest of the Muslims. Uh, but what we do know about him, that he was a scholar and he was definitely a, uh, you know, a uh, proponent of uh, Ibn Arabi's work, Wahdatul Hujud and the Khalwati Order. So at this point, you've got all these influential people who have been sent to the same area, mainly to keep them away from um, other areas, such as the East Indies. What happened at that point then? Um, you know, they were they able to propagate their religion freely? Were they able to practice their own religion freely? Um, what would day-to-day life have been like for them? So the ups and downs of, of Cape Muslim history is certainly the... From uh, after Sheikh Yusuf passes away, um, much of the Dutch officials forced some of his descendants to, you know, marry Dutch people and leave Islam outwardly. And um, thereafter, we have a period of quite um, some somewhat difficulty because Sheikh Yusuf is not even part of the Muslim community that was quite small. And um, records of Dutch uh, torture as well, of, of anyone practicing Islam, uh, was something which was quite cruel uh, in and of itself. I mean, they'd have on the Grand Parade, and you can come here to Cape Town and you can see the Grand Parade on there. They'd have this turning table. Anyone um, found to be practicing Islam or practicing any religion besides uh, the official Dutch Reformed Church and you know Christianity... Uh, would be placed on the crucified and the, the body would be split in half. So that was, was, was quite crazy. Um, there are records that um, because they were unable to pray, 
um, outwardly they would have to pray blinking, you know, the eyes, that's a particular rukhsa that you can get to um, in terms of, of the fiqh and um, so also, much so that subhanAllah, that they'd have to, they'd literally sit still and just blink the movements yeah, absolutely, and uh, so much so that uh, when it's Ramadan Maghrib time came, they'd have to open the doors so that you know, they, they were seen not to break their fast or oh, wow. not eating force fed during the day these records are there because not only were the Muslims, it was you know, relayed through oral history through the Muslims, but also because uh, much of the generals and the, the commanders um, from the Dutch and later on the British would record this in, in their diaries that they would keep. So that was quite fascinating. What, so you mean they kept a record of the punishments they inflicted upon them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, these were you know capitalist companies who had to report back to the states that they were right. assigned from yeah, I think the uh, Dutch East Indian Company, you know, one of the major features of uh, new empires in, in history is um, the development of ships and the uh, expansion of empires beyond the actual um, borders or neighboring countries or states uh, of the actual uh, colonial ruler. But um, they also ha- were the first multinational companies who had the uh, were given the um, ability to actually execute <laughs> the subjects or the employees right. or whatever. Call it, um, you know, uh, um, you know, i.e., slaves. So that was uh, quite cruel. Um, and uh, later on, the Islam k- kind of is maintained through practice of dhikr. I think um, because Sheikh Yusuf was aloof from the society, they didn't really have much um, knowledge propagation. There were other great um, uh, saints and teachers, uh, but because of the difficulty, they certainly had to. Um, have dhikr and so one of the things you'll notice about uh, the South African Muslim dhikr uh, uh, and the dhikr circles that we have we practice the Ratibul Haddad but the way we recite it is quite uh, slow and, and, and different tone and there's two theories about this the one theory is that um, it was to disguise the actual dhikr um, as Christian hymnal tones so okay, they sound yeah. like actual, actually hymns in Greek, Latin, whatever it may be, but it's actually Arabic, and they're singing the uh, praises of, of the Quran and, and the Sunnah from the Ratib al-Haddad. Um, and the other theory was that because the torture was so horrible that the slow-paced um, dhikr was out of sadness or the suffering and showing the iftiqar and ittirar, one of those great features of dua that we should all have in our, right. in our supplication uh, to Allah to relieve the, the difficulty. Oh, and so... Um, so we we continue that up until today, uh, you know, and yeah. Uh, yeah I'll so. put um, a link in the show notes of a video on YouTube because um, so Muazzam Mir, who people who listen regularly will already know of, um, so he sent me a video before we did this episode, and that's exactly what we were both saying is how unique it is and how much it sounds like a hymn almost. Um, I've never heard the Ratib recited in that way before, but it completely makes sense now that you explain it in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, we'll get into the current climate of Islamic uh, thought in South Africa. And uh, unfortunately, some people are saying, OK, well, that's uh, yesteryear and we should change to what is not considered. Oh, gosh, uh, please don't pin- change it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, um, every Thursday night we still practice it and the, the radio you know, plays it every Thursday night live from a different location. And if there's one thing I can say about the South African Muslim and particularly the Cape Muslim, 
a community, Cape Townian Muslim community, uh, that is the importance of the vicar circles and the, as we call it, the khadat, um, that has kept the community afloat. Um, uh, especially because the Dutch had sent certain Malay slaves to other parts of the world where Islam had, had, had you know, stopped, unfortunately, but it continued in, in Cape Town in South Africa. So, okay, so following this period of persecution, um, so what happened to the descendants of these people? Like, did they go through a period where they went, where maybe they lost the deen or, um, or they just had to practice kind of undercover or what actually happened? So well, I'm talking like the, the generations following that period. Well, well, that, that's where it becomes really cruel. And that's why, um, a, a little bit later on, we, when the, uh, the British are about to take over, rule in, in Cape Town uh, many of the Dutch are trying to free the, the Muslim slaves in order to get them on their side as they force many of them to become Christian they also um, you know there was a lot of rape happening a lot of um, children born out of wedlock unfortunately and, and you know this is something that's uh, I look, look back at it of course with sadness but at the same time we were able to overcome many of those things and um, I think, um, you know, the challenges um, of that time, which were really crazy and difficult, um, many of them were forced to become uh, non-Muslim, but those who could keep the Islam and some of them were bought their freedom uh, were able to maintain that until every five years or 10 years or 15 years, someone would come from uh, Indonesia who was a great scholar or some sort of um, student of a great scholar who could actually continue. And I mean, the, the famous hadith about um, Allah sends a mujaddid every hundred or every generation. Yeah, that was exactly years. my thought there. It's almost like Allah sent every 10, 20 years someone yeah, because dire situation Africa. that we had. But um, nonetheless, then the influence of the Yemenis came because um, some of those who had gone to Indonesia were also exiled to South Africa, especially a sheikh by the name of Said Alawi, who is buried at Tanabaru, and um, if you come here again, you'll see him. Um, he was from the, the, the city of Mokka in southern Yemen, and um, uh, he, was, he was from the, the Ba'alawi, and he was a great uh, teacher. One of the things that he had done was, because he wasn't uh, traditionally um, Indonesian, um, and you know he was Arab, but apparently his features weren't very Arab, um, he was able to, he wasn't a slave, and so he was able to actually adopt um, a, a job as a policeman. And while doing so, he would uh, teach Islam to the prisoners who were, of course, he's um, Indonesian and uh, different ethnicities, um, he's, he's brethren in Islam. Right. And that's certainly one of the ways that um, Islam you know, maintained its, its presence in the 18th century. Now, the coming of the next Mujaddid was certainly the father of public Islam in South Africa, which we owe so much of our, our heritage to and the preservation. And his name uh, was Tuan Guru, and uh, he was um, Imam Abdullah ibn Qadi Abdussalam. Tell us a bit about him. Absolutely. So, I mean, hailing from a family of scholars in, in the Hadramaut, uh, Tuan Guru's um, ancestors arrived in Indonesia much earlier on and he was a descendant of one of the nine saints who had brought Islam to Indonesia they were called the Wali Songo and um, his uh, ancestor's name was Sunan Gunang Jati and uh, Sharif Hidayatullah 
uh, who was a Sayyid, a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and he was one of those founding fathers of Indonesian Islam and um, he became the Sultan of Banten and Cirebon and so um, uh, Tonguru, uh, definitely someone who's from royalty but also uh, following a tradition of scholarship in Indonesia now uh, he found himself in an unfortunate situation where he was part of um, you know the royalty which um, the Unfortunately, got caught up into in some political uh, debates where uh, some uh, sort of compromise had to be made between uh, the, Jav- the people of the Javanese and, of course, the battle between the Dutch and the British over there. And he was exiled alongside three other people. Uh, one uh, allegedly or seemingly more superior than him, the Qadi, uh, Qadi Abdurraouf, and um, of course, um, there was also the scribe. Um, and uh, Badruddin was there as well, and some other people had come with him. Um, but when he had come to all the way to Cape Town, exiled here, um, he was one of the first people to actually write letters and to write books. And he, in fact, he wrote the Quran, uh, you know, according to the historians, five times from memory. So preservation oh, of the Quran was. And so, if you come to Cape Town, you'll see uh, Masjid Awal, the first Masjid, and he was also responsible for. The, the first masjid, the first public masjid, because um, British took over at the turn of the 19th century. And uh, Tuanguru gets um, married to you know, one of the locals, Khadija Fanikap. Um, and uh, she, uh, you know, I believe had a daughter, Saj Fanikap, who had property. And she gave, you know, our, our women had a major part to play in our preservation of Islam here as well. And I can speak about many of the women in, in, in Cape South African Muslim history, she gives the the, the, the land waqaf uh, for for a masjid and a madrasa, and Tuanguru starts the, the has the first Jumu'ah in public in quarry near to the masjid, and then he starts the madrasa, and the madrasa had, you know, in a very short time over five hundred students. Now during that same time, with the University of Cape Town or the South African. Um, you know, colleges um, and schools, whatever it may, it may be called, SACs for short, um, they only had about 200 students. And so the Muslims actually had a greater institution in Cape Town than the actual, um, you know, colonizers. And the people who made up that madrasa were a mixture of different uh, ethnicities, so much so that we know for a fact that many of the, the, the people who had later become teachers were Europeans themselves. Much of them had been either from the Dutch colonizers' children or there was travelers who had come past Cape Town and interacted with the local Muslims and decided to accept Islam. And many of them had given land as well to build other of the masajid that you'll see in Cape Town if you ever visit us. So, I mean, these stories that you're you're telling us, are these these a common knowledge within South Africa today? Like, are people aware of the roots of, of like, being within the region? I'm giving you the official version. There's a lot more that, people don't know about. Most people know these things, at least the Cape Muslims, South African Muslims, they're aware of, of much of the information that I'm giving now. Over the years, because of the different disputes, and unfortunately, uh, it's quite funny because um, you know we were, we were talking off, uh, off air about the, um, the disputes that you have in South Africa compared to the United Kingdom, and uh, much of the disputes then were taken very seriously. They were actually fiqhi disputes, so between the Shafi'is and the Hanafis, whereas nowadays you usually see theological disputes between Aqidah, you know. Right. So, so, so that was quite fascinating. But what happened was, 
you know, Tuanguru, he, he, he has this masjid and he has so many, so, so many different students. Um, and then there's a dispute between his successor because his successor was Ahmed van Bengalen and he also had a student named Jan van Buchis. And these were names, of course, that are not, you know, um, quote unquote, very Muslim names because they were given names by the Dutch officials. So van Buchis. Uh, from a particular area, Van Bengalen, even though Bengal is, of course, India, but he wasn't Indian at all. That was just where the port was, where they had fetched him from. But he was oh, in okay. Indonesia. Um, and um, I think it's it's similar to some of the uh, um, the Indians in, in or the Pakistanis in the UK who had to adopt the name of someone who had sponsored them to come over or something like that. So... Um, there was a dispute, and the, the main reason the dispute was there was because Ahmed van Bengalen was still a slave, and Jan van Buchis believed that a slave can't lead Jumu'ah, <laughs> because it's not even wajib upon slaves to make Jumu'ah. Right. So, so this was the fiqh dispute that occurred. They were both Shafi'i, however, and then Jan van Buchis starts the, the, the second masjid in Cape Town called the Palm Tree Mosque, and that's in Long Street, uh, right in the center of Cape Town. Now, many years pass, and there's many different ulama, and the madrasa grows strong, but uh, Islam starts to um, wither away because, not completely, but because of the lack of real knowledge, um, you know, people connecting to the source itself. Um, what Tuanguru had left, the copies of the Quran and his book called Ma'rifatul Islam on Iman, a 600-page uh, elucidation of the various aspects of uh, the three Jibrailian tradition that we have, what is Islam, what is Iman, what is Ihsan, and the different fiqhi, um, you know, aspects of that, um, it wasn't enough because it was now just a book and not a living tradition. And um, the Muslims, right. they started to write uh, some letters and they wrote to Queen Victoria in, in, in the United Kingdom, in, in Britain, requesting a scholar to come over. And uh, she talks to uh, one of the sultans of the Ottoman Empire who sends a scholar. Uh, from the from from the Ottoman Empire, a, a, a Kurdish uh, Ottoman scholar by the name of um, Sheikh Abu Bakr Effendi, who, according to our history books, was a mujtahid fil madhab. He knew the different madhahi, but he decided to teach the Hanafi madhab in Cape Town in respect of the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, who happened to be, of course, Hanafi. Right. And um, he taught some of the descend some of the descendants of Tuanguru. Um, but unfortunately, you know, they, they, they went into disagreement. Um, the major issue was that he said that um, crayfish was haram. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and so, it had to be about food, didn't it? <laughs> so the Shafi'is didn't want to take that because they loved crayfish. And so <laughs> <laughs> they took him to actual court and there was an actual court case about the whole incident. Oh, wow. So it's not like it wasn't like just the Islamic Sharia court. It was actual Dutch court, and they were fighting about a Sharia issue <laughs> in the court. And and similarly to that was of course the number of people you need for a Jumu'ah because um, many other people weren't uh, Hanafi, but some of the Shafi'is went to the mosque of um, one of Tuanguru's descendants, Imam Abdul Rakib, Abdul Rakib, or the Queen uh, Abdul Rakib. Um, uh, there were only, you know, a number, a few people at the Jumu'ah, not the 40 stipulated in the Shafi'i Madhab, so there went another court case. And, and just this courted so, this caused so much differences and challenges. Uh, but every time Abu Bakr Effendi won the court case, and I don't know what the reason might have been, maybe, he, maybe the Dutch understood the fiqh, or maybe they were <laughs> siding with the Ottoman Scared Empire. The Ottomans, yeah. So it was quite fascinating. That was uh, much of the history. That was the Turkish influence he brought. Many people, right. he 
in. He started a madrasa only for women as well. It's quite fascinating. So in my opinion, the first um, Mujadid of Islam in Cape Town, the renewal of Islam was Sheikh Yusuf, then came Tuanguru, then came Abu Bakr Effendi, and then came the, the, the latest Mujadid, who was Sheikh Muhammad Saleh Hendricks. And this is a very, very interesting story. And uh, th- this story is about um, you know, someone who his grandfather converts converted to Islam, and quite an interesting, uh, you know, uh, story of, of of his conversion. Of course, um, his father, Imam Abdullah Al Hajj, from Swellendam, outside of Cape Town, they come to Cape Town, and uh, one of the scholars of Mecca, one of the Sayyids of Mecca, had come. Uh, his name was Sayyid Abdul Aziz. Um, he, he came to Cape Town uh, after the Hajj, and by this time, uh, you know, the ships were ready to sail for. You know, uh, a few pounds to go to the Hajj. It was much more che- much cheaper than it is today. <laughs> and um, he comes to Cape Town and he notices this boy. He notices this boy and he says to his father, "Oh, let him come with me. Um, I want to teach him the Dean." And his father says, "No, he's going to go somewhere to learn medicine. He'll become a doctor." And the Sheikh says, "No, he'll become a doctor of the hearts." And he becomes the person who introduces Imam Al Ghazali, Fakhruddin Al Razi. He renews Ibn al-Arabi in the community so much so that this is what the, this is our fundamental teachings that we start off as children uh, today. And he is the grandfather of the current uh, shayukh of the Zawiyah in Cape Town, who were the students of Sayyid Muhammad Ali al-Maliki from Mecca and uh, brought the Shadhali and the Alawi Tariqa to Cape Town and uh, really encapsulating meaningful um, living as uh, and Islam as a way of being. Um, and, and it really made us so much um, tolerant to, to different viewpoints um, uh, in, in our community. I love that story so much. So everything you've told us so far, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more that could be said. Um, but this is all considered the first phase of Muslim migration to South Africa. And then the second phase is the arrival of Indian Muslims. Is that correct? Okay, well, the... There's this difference of opinion, of course, of Indian Muslims coming to South Africa. There were uh, allegedly Shafi'i Indians from Malabar and uh, the western east coast of India coming with uh, somewhat with the original slaves. But most of the Indian South African slaves who had come were Hindu. It was only after slavery was abolished that Indian free businessmen had come. Right. You know, some of them, of course, passengers, and we know about the. Uh, the manipulation of some of the peoples, of some of the um, ex-colonizers who had brought some of these slaves as well to South Africa for different business and sugar cane plantations, originally and also after slavery was abolished. Um, Much of them had gone to Durban, and the biggest story there was about a man named Sufi Sab, uh, Qadri Chisti. And when I say Qadri, you know, the Qadri order in in Tariqa, in Tasawuf, it doesn't necessarily mean a particular Qadri order because if I look at the Qadri tariqa that I had grown up in Cape Town, it's much different to the Syrian or Iraqi version, at least the, the way I see they make dhikr, for example. Yeah. So much of the turuq became known as Qadri, even though they might have been Rifai uh, or they might have been, uh, you know, uh, Shadhali or Chisti, for example, and, and many of them are mixed. But at the end of the day, I mean, all people of Tasawuf in South Africa especially, they understand that they're all different paths to Tariqa Muhammadiyah as a concept, which is the path of the Prophet Sallallahu and how to develop one's heart according to the heart of the Prophet Sallallahu from different aspects. 
Um, but Sufi Sab comes and he goes to Durban and he sends his uh, brother-in-law, his wife's brother, who is Yid Muqaddam, he sends him to Cape Town. And uh, this man comes to Cape Town and he, he's, he's welcomed by a particular um, Indonesian Muslim here with the surname of Jakut. And um, he, this man has a horse and so he gets him onto his horse and, and he says, you know, according to the Prophet when he entered Medina, um, he stopped wherever the, ca- the the camel stopped, and so we'll do the same thing. They made du'a and they said we'll stop wherever this horse stops, and the horse stopped in uh, an area, and they got off, and uh, he made du'a. Um, this person by the name of uh, Sayyid Abdul Latif Kazi. They happen to be descendants of Sayyid Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, um, and uh, he makes du'a for Mr. Jakut, who had this Muslim, and he says, "May your offspring all be highly intelligent and blessed." And today the Jakuts are known to be all doctors, engineers, sheikhs and great people in, in our community. And, and we certainly see the effect of that dua. Uh, but he starts the Habibia Sufi Masjid. And this becomes a amazing place illuminating so much of the Muslim community here. And that family, the, 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 the Kajis as they're known today, has created uh, you know rippling effects in Cape Town among the uh, you know, people of Tasawuf. And one of the greatest things also because... Um, even though um, the majority of the Muslim community are tolerant, uh, there have been some sort of aqidah debates and issues between the Ahlul Sunnah al Jama'ah and the the, the, the Shia. Um, you know, we don't necessarily accept them in the community as as being on the correct path. But many of of them, many of us believe that, of course, they are Muslim. Um, that's the opinion of the majority of the Ahlul Sunnah al Jama'ah that the Shia are Muslim. But what's interesting is that many of the people who uh, become Shia from the Indonesians more recently after the Iranian revolution were people who were not connected to the tariq, the turuq of of Tasawuf that originated from much of the Indian community. The reason being is because the way I was taught, especially from my mother's side of of the family, my father was also introduced to that, was that the Ahl Bayt was a major component of, of, of the life even for the for the Sunnis. And there's no difference in, in our understanding that the Ahl Bayt and the Sahaba are, you know, there's no, there's reconciliation between them and it's completely accepted and we, we see them in the same light and we, we hold them both uh, both groups to seem, if, even though we don't really see them as, as opposing groups at all. Right. But many of the Indonesians, they were not introduced to the understanding of the Ahl Bayt um, because of, of perhaps the, the, the um, I, I'm not too sure, but, but, but sometimes because of the outright, uh, you know, association that Ahl Bayt means Shia. So, so, so yeah, that's um, part, partly uh, to do with uh, some of the Indian Muslims uh, coming here, but also in, in Durban. A great Indian Muslim community. In fact, apparently the the largest Indian community, uh, obviously Hindu and Muslims outside of India, is actually in Durban, in um, in, in in Southern Africa. That's to do with a, a, a location, as in a province. I, I'm pretty sure it must be some area in London we predominantly amount of. The, <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, talking about the community today, would you say that most people are descendants of? Um, you know, recent migrants, or are they the descendants of the early Muslims that you were talking about? Well, I mean, uh, in in terms of the statistics, uh, according to how many slaves and where the slaves came from, the majority of slaves, according to the statistics, sorry, statistics came from India. 
um, and these were Hindu slaves. Uh, you know, others came from Africa, from, from Indonesia. Um, so based on that, if they were Hindu, most of them, then I couldn't say that the majority of, of Muslims came from India, um, based on that. But right. later on, Indians came. Um, it would be difficult to give a particular um, you know, figure on that. But the majority of Muslims in South Africa do come from Cape Town. So there's approximately only 2 million Muslims in South Africa. That's not a big figure at all. I mean, uh, but 5% of the com- of the population of South Africa, but the influence we've had has, has been, you know, massive compared to the actual quantification of how much we are. Um, and the majority of that is in Cape Town. The majority of Cape Muslims are Indonesian. But if you go to places like Johannesburg and Durban, um, you'll find mostly Indian Muslims over there. Right. Yeah. And I forgot to, I should have asked you this earlier, but amongst like the indigenous population, um, so early on, were there many converts amongst them? Okay, well, well that's interesting because um, there's a difference of opinion on this, again, with, the, with regards to historians. But what's fascinating is that in the early 20th century, some of the white historians had written about the Golden Circle. Now, this was obviously based on some uh, stories that we had gotten from Tuanguru, and he said that, don't worry, after I die, there will be a golden circle of saints around Cape Town to protect it from any type of spiritual and physical and natural disasters. And up to, up to today, there hasn't been many natural disasters. Now, I mean, that's just a effort from, you know, and a saying from uh, Tuanguru, but uh, this was written about in the newspapers, and if you, if you look at the actual structure of uh, the, the different burial sites for the different saints, you know, more than 40 of them, uh, it somewhat forms a circle around Cape Town, and um, much of where they are buried are actually the same trails that the original indigenous Khoisan people had uh, traversed, from, uh, you know, over the mountains, and um, you know, Table Mountain, and what that tells us is that the com- connection between the Muslims who had come here and the relationship to the indigenous people must have been some somewhat special, especially, uh, you know, unifying against the Dutch colonizers. Right. So speaking of these tombs, um, so if people want to go and visit them, how easy is it for them to do that? Are they still accessible? Um, are there, you know, tour guides or anything like that, people who would be willing to show them? Well, I mean, uh, there's definitely accessibility to them. Uh, they are tours indeed. It's not very commercial in that sense. You know, people just take you. And I think there's one or two commercial tour guides. I'm sure people will be able to set you up with that if you want that. But um, I'm always free to do so. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and I'm here. In fact, I'm taking some people on this weekend. Um, um, but, um, I think what's important, however, is that you make sure that the person taking you, uh, know the facts because I've listened right. to, um, in fact, uh, people commissioned by the South African government with regards to the various museums going there talking about the Muslims and these are Muslims themselves, um, absolutely confusing the, the historical facts, um, right. you know, and, it, and and that that is one of the things that has urged me um, as a young person, a young Muslim in South Africa, some, and this is quite uncommon among young people. I mean, a lot of the young people here, um, because we are technically in Africa, but very European and somewhat part of the West as well. South Africa is probably the, Cape Town is probably the most European city in Africa, according to many people. Um, we a lot of people are deluded by some of the flashing lights of the West, and some of the Muslims are young people, especially are like that. 
Um, but many of, of the others, of course, connected to spiritual groups and connected to seeking ma'ilm. Um, but there aren't that many really interested in understanding the history and, of course, you know where we come from in order to really benefit our future. Um, and, and so I, I, I'm not trying to praise myself, but I'm definitely connected to certain historians who are older than me that have yeah. really looked into the historical facts. So some of the books that they've written is certainly a guide for us to understand the, the, the differences in the histories that have been written based on the archives, based on the biases that are that's out there. Um, most recently, I've contributed to a book called From the Spice Islands to Cape Town, The Life and Times of Tuanguru, written by Shafiq Morton, who is, himself is a white convert to Islam, and uh, he's a veteran journalist here as well. Uh, so, so these people are around, and uh, we welcome anyone to come here and, of course, um, experience and learn from, uh, you know, the, the Islam, Islam in South Africa. I'll put links for those books and also the people you've mentioned all in our show notes so that if um, anybody wants to look them up further, they can do that. Um, but thank you so much for coming and having this conversation with us because, um, you know, many of the stories you've shared with us are not really accessible um, you know, unless somebody like you comes on and tells us about them. And I feel like South Africa just has such a unique history, um, not just Muslim, but otherwise as well. And it's just so important that we understand that and appreciate that. Um, and I think some of the stuff you've told us is hard to listen to, like it's it's tragic really, but it's also such a story of survival and hope and um, yeah, so thank you so much for sharing it with us. Oh, yeah, it's been brilliant. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to following Sacred Footsteps, and uh, I think this is absolutely amazing. And I hope people will, they can free to, of course, contact me if they want to know more about this, and I hope to write for Sacred Footsteps in the future. Um, just, you know, uh, follow me on, on social media. Yes, and keep me. Shukran so much. We really look forward to that. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for listening. All of the links that we've mentioned you'll find in our show notes. Find us on social media at Sacred Footsteps and Twitter as S Footsteps. 